Welcome to the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubs. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Season 3 of the Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast, evidence-informed, practice-led. Today, I have the pleasure to be speaking with a real leader in the world of strength and conditioning. Dr. Dan Clether, PhD, is on the show. In this episode, Dan shares the most important rule of training and the common mistakes people make in training at the beginner, intermediate, and advanced level that compromises this cardinal rule. Dan talks about the tremendous value of starting a program slow, the minimum effective dose, and how this can propel your performance in the long run. He also talks about his preference for wave loading and how you can maximize your gains with this method as well as things like training auto-regulation, what is it and how it can benefit you, and why leaving sessions feeling better than when you started is a crucial part of the training process, and of course, much, much more. Great insights here from a researcher, a practitioner. Dan wears both hats in his practice and really does a great job of distilling the evidence down to the most actionable and practical elements, as well as highlighting the pitfalls along the way not only in this interview, but in his terrific book, The Little Black Book of Training Wisdom. You can check out the podcast summary in the show notes at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. And if you're interested in more on this topic, then go on back to season one, episode 40 with sprint coach Derek Hansen for more on the building power and speed. And of course, season two, episode 39 with renowned strength coach, Mr. Mike Robertson, for more great insights. Terrific. If you're new to the podcast, thanks for jumping on board. You can get caught up by checking out last season's Best of 2018 long-form edition with highlights from a collection of last season's world-class guests. That's season two, episode 50. And remember, you can check out all these experts and much more on YouTube, iTunes, or your favorite podcasting platform. Make sure you subscribe and you won't miss any of the action in 2019. All right, before we get started, a quick word from this episode's sponsor, Totem Sport. Totem Sport is the world's only 100% natural supplement. No sugar, no artificial flavors, absolutely nothing added. What is it? Totem Sport is the world's purest mineral-rich ocean water. Collected from natural algae blooms in the Atlantic Ocean, Totem Sport is the only sport drink supplement that contains all 78 naturally occurring minerals and trace elements. The research on ocean mineral water is ramping up, a recent study highlighting its major promise as the optimal rehydrating strategy over spring water and other sports drinks. Totem Sport is the evolution of hydration, the world's only 100% natural sport drink, tested and approved by Informed Sport and Informed Choice. Use the promo code BUBS10, B-U-B-B-S-10 at checkout and save 10% at totemsport.co.uk and defy the norm. All right, let's do this. Season three, episode four with Dr. Dan Clether. Enjoy. My guest today is Dr. Dan Clether, a strength coach, educator, and scientist. Dan has worked with the English Institute for Sport, as well as world and Olympic champions in track and field athletics, rowing, canoeing, and rugby. He is currently program director 
of the Masters in Strength and Conditioning at St. Mary's University, Twickenham. Dan, appreciate you carving out some time today. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, I'm excited to be here. Terrific. Well, I'm looking forward to talking uh, strength and conditioning here today and about your uh, terrific book, The Little Black Book of Training Wisdom, which is a fantastic resource. But before we do, can you tell listeners a little bit more about your journey to your current role at St. Mary's University? Yeah. um, So I guess like many people, when I first left university, I didn't really know um, what I wanted to do. And I kind of fell into a career in, in finance. Uh, I, and I quickly kind of uh, realized that's not what I wanted to do. Um, and at the time, I was trying to get better at playing basketball. Uh, and I came across yeah, I came across this profession of a strength and conditioning coach, which I'd never heard of before, um, and, and, and decided that looked like fun. So I guess... That was early 2000 in the UK, and there didn't seem many opportunities to, to train as an S&C coach. Um, so I, I moved to California um, and, and studied at Long Beach State, uh, worked in their weight room uh, until I got a job with English Institute of Sport to come back to the UK and, and actually work as an S&C coach, I guess. Sorry, go ahead. That's fantastic. Yeah, you traded the... Uh the dark winters for the sunny skies of the west coast right yeah I, i'm still not sure that that wasn't a mistake uh, <laughs> or the return wasn't a mistake terrific well listen let's talk about some of the mistakes people make in training because that's definitely okay. a great uh, part of your book how well you unpack a lot of this stuff and you know can you take us through whether it's athletes clients trainers uh, some of the common mistakes you see at different levels whether it's beginner intermediate or even advanced lifters yeah, thanks. Uh, I mean, I, I start my book with uh, a presentation of what I call the cardinal rule of training. Um, and the cardinal rule of training is, is simple. And, and I think most people have it in their mind. Uh, and that, that is that to get better at things, you have to do it a lot. And if you're going to do something a lot, you have to be really consistent. The mistakes that people make in training across all levels are that they pay lip service to the cardinal rule uh, and they behave in a way that actually prejudices their consistency. Mm-hmm. So I guess, uh, you know, a, a classic example of that is that athletes who um, overtrain, so kind of athletes have in their minds, okay, I, uh, you know, I, I need to train really, really hard. Um, because that's how I'm going to get better. Um, but in training really, really hard, they either get injured or overtrain, which then means they miss loads of training and, and actually aren't consistent. Yeah, it is incredible how you know how how well you lay out that cardinal rule, and how when we think about whether it's recreational clients or even athletes, uh, that it, it it is difficult for a lot of people to adhere to that idea of just consistency and really building up to things. And you know you. A quote from your book is probably the most problematic guideline is the suggestion to, that to train for increases in strength it is necessary to use lows of greater than 85%. So, you know, dovetailing on what we just talked about, could you uh, unpack that uh, quote a little bit? Yeah, so, I, I mean, 
if you look in any textbook as to what maximum strength training is, it's probably going to say that maximum strength training is is training with an intensity of over 80 or 85 percent. Um, and so kind of like a, a really classic strength training protocol would be to do five sets of five with, you know, 80 to 85 percent of one, your one repetition max. If you have to do a session like that, it's really hard. <laughs> like if you if you're a reasonably well-trained person to do five sets of five, say a, of a back squat with 85%, it is a really grueling workout. And the idea that you would do that type of workout week on week is just desperately unrealistic. Um, and, 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 the, and would lead to kind of quickly uh, breaking uh, or, or losing motivation. Yeah, it is amazing how obviously the, the, the more advanced the lifter, the more apparent this becomes. And, and Dan, is is that a result of oftentimes in you know in science and in undergoing some of these studies, it's we're using more novice or uh, collegiate student lifters versus the really advanced lifters, or what's or what's going on here? Yeah, I, I mean that, that's my contention in the book is that it's this guideline of 80 to 85 percent is a really classic uh an interesting example of how research can be uh misleading if you don't understand its context and so yeah most research studies that have actually looked at the effect of training are done in less elite populations and over short time periods and yeah certainly in if, if you're simply training for a few weeks, then using a percentage of your 1RM around about 80, 85% might be the most effective. Um, but you can't train like that year round. Um, and so kind of so that, that guideline, which may be yeah, correct for a very, very short duration, it is, is nonsense if, you, if you're thinking about, okay, well, how am I going to de- develop an athlete over the course of five years? Yeah, and something that really struck me as well in, in your book is this idea that a lot of the classic programs in Russia, the guidelines don't actually stipulate a rep range for strength or hypertrophy, but rather the you know this volume intensity relationship and, and even a maximum number of, of reps to be performed. Can you explain that concept to listeners? Yeah, so I, I kind of, it, as you say in the book, I contrast this kind of this the Western research, which says okay, you train at eighty five percent with some of the Russian research from the 60s, 70s, and 80s, um, where they kind of case study what the very strongest, the very strongest Russian weightlifters were doing, and those guys, they, they train at a much much lighter intensity than than will be suggested by the Western guideline, and get really really strong using uh, loads in the 60 to 70 percent range. I, I think it's also interesting as well that the more elite, or counterintuitively, the more elite you get, the lower the intensity of training that you do, or, or, or certainly in Russia, that was the case. Yeah, it's interesting in terms of just obviously being, you know, so strong in those loads, as you mentioned, a five by five, if you're advanced, just the, how intense that is when you're a really advanced lifter versus somebody who is uh, sort of just starting out. And if we shift gears here to more recreational lifters and talking about knowing where to start a program, you know, obviously it's January, a lot of people 
of all levels are getting back to the gym. Yeah. Um, and you talk about the minimum effective dose. So, so why is it important for them as well to, to start light? And, and what are some of the pitfalls if someone is kicking off a program here in January of starting too heavy? Yeah, I, I mean, I, th- I think what people often don't realize is that if you haven't done something before, just doing a little bit of it is, is going to make you better. And so it's not really necessary to to flog yourself to death in, in the weight room if, you, <laughs> if, if you've never been in there before, because pretty much anything that you're going to do in there is going to help you to improve. And then the advantage of, okay, well, holding something back is that, well, as you do improve, you've got somewhere else to go. Um, so it's kind of, you, you don't spend these more demanding stimuli before you need to. And Dan, is that something that you would still see? And I mean, I know in recreational gyms and stuff, that's definitely something we still see with trainers kind of really beating up new clients t- too excessively. But is that something that you s- still see in, in athletic circles or collegiate high school circles of, of going too heavy to start programs? Yeah, very, very, very much so. Um, like it, at the at the most elite level, I, I have still seen uh, Olympic medal winning athletes make big games in strength just by going back to basics, but going back to basics in terms of the way that they load. So start light and progress sensibly rather than just hammering yourself all the time, which which just means that you plateau and don't make don't make improvements. And you also make a great argument as well that wave loading is, is one of the most effective ways to make progress. And you know, could you maybe define wave loading for anyone who might not be familiar and, and you know, talk about some of the ideal rates of progression? Yeah, so I, I mean, personally in my practice, I, I, I use wave loading extensively. Um, wave loading is, is just a, an implementation of, a, of probably the most classic and historically uh, true uh, resistance training principles and that is this principle of progressive overload so that okay if you train with something you adapt to it and you get better but then if you want to keep getting better you have to increase the challenge so wave loading is is a very simple way of increasing the challenge which is that you just each week increment the load that you're using. Uh, what what I kind of try to stress in, in my book is that people who use wave loading strategies often tend to start heavier than they need to. Mm-hmm. And it means that they don't really um, have much variation in the load they do. They start hard. Uh, they're able to get a little bit harder and then they have to go back and start again because they've, they've run out of somewhere to go. Um, whereas a more productive wave loading scheme is to start light, be able to build up progressively o- over a period of weeks, um, and, and not have to work too hard to get better in the early and middle part of the cycle. Yeah, such a great point. And obviously a lot of programs that you read in the, in the blogosphere, online coaches, they often want you know, trainees to really max out each wave, you know, to keep going until they're really no longer improving. And you make a great point of suggesting, you know, to start a new wave before an athlete or a client is maxing out. Can you, 
um, discuss why? Yeah, the, uh, it's something that I've only come to recently because I also used to kind of, yeah, run a wave protocol until until the athlete really reaches their peak. Um, but if you think about what you're doing, then you're you really are squeezing every last piece of adaptation out of the athlete, and so when they get to the end of that cycle, they're going to be pretty um, drained, and and that's going to result in a a necessary kind of dip in performance. Um, I, in the book, I kind of use the analogy of a, a peak. So if you if you think about a mountain. Um, if you go up one side to reach the peak, by definition, that means there's a big drop on the other side. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think it's much better to kind of start building up through a cycle, get to a place where you're flying and everything is easy, and then go back down and start building up again, rather than continuing until everything starts getting hard again, even if you're you know, a little bit stronger um, when everything starts getting hard again. Yeah, that idea you, you highlight and really make a good point of is this is normal reaction of, of having a significant drop off after you really do truly peak. And I think that's something that most, a lot of clients, trainees, athletes, even trainers often forget. Um, and yeah. why it's such a good reason to be using that type of strategy. And, you know, you, you talk as well about the bit of the myth of always giving 110%, and this probably dovetails on what we've talked about here, but. Can you talk a little bit about you know that idea of going all out all the time and definitely something that we see in social media or in, in commercials of athletes? It's always you know one hundred and ten percent. Yeah, all the time. I, I, I just don't think you can do it. Um, I mean, uh, another of the the key principles in, in, in my book is that, and, and again, it's not a, a particularly original principle, but is this idea that okay, well. If we're training heavy, we want it to be heavy. And if we're training light, we want it to be light. Whereas actually what most trainees tend to do is just just tread water in the middle. Um, so kind of they can't bring themselves to train light enough. So whenever they train, they kind of train moderately hard. And then for hard sessions, they kind of take train hard. Um, but the impact of that is, well, they're just... At, at, at a very in a very similar range for all of their training, um, I think that when you when you want to train hard, you need to be able to go hard. Um, and so, if you're going to, in order to be able to do that, that means that you very necessarily have when you're training light, it has to be really light. Um, for I mean, maybe it, it, it's a point that applies a little bit more to more elite athletes than to recreational athletes. Um, but one, one thing that maybe recreational athletes don't realize is that actually, if, if you're an elite athlete, then when you perform at your best, it, it's actually hugely draining and, and not something that you, you, you can't go to the well very often. And, and that's not just in, in resistance training, for instance. I, I, I used to work with a very, very good middle distance runner. Um, we're talking kind of running a mile in in sub three minutes 50 seconds wow um and post the race like he was just battered for for days in in a really neural way not in a he's a bit tired because he's been sweaty but but he he's drained in in a very similar way that you might think you know a great powerlifter will be drained after 
after doing a gigantic deadlift. Yeah, it's amazing how the armchair quarterback or the recreational exerciser, sometimes it's difficult for them to comprehend that. They see them sort of fall down at the end of a hard race or these efforts that are going on. And, and as you mentioned, when you're that elite, the, the amount of resources that are going in to elicit that uh, action and that movement is, is just tremendous. And yeah. you, know, you, you have a great line where you talk about leaving the session feeling better than when you started. Yeah, I, I stole that from Dan John, um, the the American throws coach. Nice. Uh, <laughs> but uh, and hopefully I, I say in the book that I did. Um, but yeah, I just think that that's you know really some of the most profound wisdom with regards to training um, across levels. So kind of Dan John often talks about that for kind of recreational athletes or or older athletes that he, he says. Kind of if you're, you know, just starting out an exercise program and you need to do it for health, the, the last thing that you need is to leave um, the session feeling worse than when you started. Um, Definitely. But for, for, the, for the elite athlete, what, what people kind of, or, or I think a, a mistake that people make is that they don't appreciate that training is practice as well as just a process of, of stressing yourself and hoping you adapt. And if training is practice, that means that, most of the time when we're, we're training, it's good if we can leave a session feeling like we've improved and that you walk away from the session where, where you actually feel stronger than when you started. And if you repeat repeatedly do that, that's how you make progress. 100%. And you, know, you talk about the concept of uh, auto-regulation as it relates to training. Could, could you define that for, for listeners and perhaps give an example of what that might look like in practice? Yeah, so autoregulation is this idea that rather than stipulating what we're going to do um, weeks in advance based on you know, a, a guess at how we're going to progress, that instead we let our body tell us what's the right load or volume to train with on, on any given day. Um, and, and there's various ways that you can do that. Um, for me, and, and, and the, the most common way that I autoregulate training is that, it, is that I don't have any expectation as to, well, if we're running a wave loading cycle, I don't have any expectation as to how long, how many weeks we're going to load there. I'm just going to let the athlete's progression dictate that. Um, if they're getting better, that's great. We'll just keep doing what we were doing. Um, if things start to get a bit hard, then then that's the signal that, that we need to change something, not that we've you know, reached the end of an arbitrary four or six week cycle. And Dan, is that something that comes with experience as well of being able to work with athletes over a period of years or whatnot? Or is that something that even younger coaches could, if they, if they put their focus to that area, could start to be able to use uh, that type of skill? Yeah, I, I think it's something that that anyone can use. And, and, and I think that there's technology that can help less experienced coaches to do that. So in, in strength and conditioning, one thing that's very popular at the moment is uh, this idea of velocity-based training, um, which is, you know, that there's, there's technology available now, which can tell you how fast that you're, how fast you're moving and that you make decisions as to when to start or stop or what load to use based on, based on the speed that you're able to move in that activity. Uh, so, so that technology for me is is 
is just doing something that an experienced coach does with their eye. Um, but for a less experienced coach, yeah, it, it gives you help as to, okay, well, you can quite clearly set up some autoregulatory rules around about velocity um, uh, and then that use that technology to guide you. Yeah, 100%, 100%. I mean, definitely that coach's eye, especially with experience, is, is able to do a lot of the things that technology can do on multiple fronts, whether it's strength and conditioning, uh, nutrition, medicine, um, but it can definitely provide some benefits there for younger coaches as well as experience. But, uh, you know, another great quote that you have in the book and something that I think we're often thinking of coaches or athletes or young trainers of moving as much weight as fast as they can. And you say, I think the most interesting skill is derived from strength training is the ability to move a submaximal weight fast with good technique. Can you unpack that statement for listeners? Yeah. So, I mean, so I, I, I kind of, in, in my practice, try and avoid saying power um, because my background is as, a, is as a biomechanist and kind of when people talk about power, they, they, they're not very precise in, in what that means. Um, so I think, I think this is my way of, of trying to describe what power means to me. And, and that is the okay. The the best strength trained athletes, they even when they're even when they're using um, a pretty heavy load, still you know execute technically very well and move very fast. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things that I I kind of see in in say CrossFit, um, and I. I, I, I if you look at the effect of CrossFit on, on Olympic weightlifting, uh, and I think that CrossFit has had a very positive effect on Olympic weightlifting. For sure. But one, but one thing that lacks there is that often when CrossFit athletes do Olympic-style weightlifting, the, there isn't the explosion um, in in the second pull. They, they, they don't have this ability to just suddenly um, change pace and and and... and just exert a huge amount of force really, really quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, for, for me, that's that's what's interesting in the weight run. But, but that's the quality that uh, that I think allows an athlete to dominate on the field of play. Definitely, and I mean, you, you talk obviously technique there, and that comes down to coaching. You know how important is a skill is really good technical coaching. Yeah, I mean, for for an S and C coach, um, uh, it's fundamental, um, and, I, and I think it's it's uh, it, you know if, if I can rant for a little bit, I, I think it is. Uh, Go for it. <laughs> thanks. Um, I I do think it's an area where in strength and conditioning, where our expectations could be raised a little bit. Um, I, I have the perception that kind of. Like a lot, a lot of coaches think that you know the, the process of getting an athlete to move really well um, is, is slow, um, whereas often uh, athletes can be taught to do things well very quickly if if you have coaching skill. So um, maybe a good example of that is that uh, it's very common in, in strength and conditioning to hear. Um, SNC coaches say that they don't believe in using Olympic weightlifting with their athletes because it's a skill that takes too long to learn. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, that's just them saying that they're not very good weightlifting coaches. 
because in the short term, a good coach can definitely teach those skills or variations exactly. of those skills, correct? Exactly, yeah. And today with uh, obviously the explosion of S&C and at the you know, university level and master's degrees like at St. Mary's University, obviously getting behind more uh, data and, and collecting of data, you know, where, where's that marriage between being able to build that good technical coaching and, of course, layering in all of the, uh, the science and data gathering behind that? Yeah, um, it's a really interesting question. Um, I mean, I think, so if, if we talk about our program, um, our pro- program is, is first and foremost driven by um, trying to help people become the best coaches that they can be. Um, so kind of coaching really takes primacy, I would say. Um, you then have, okay, well, how are you going to, uh, integrate the, the scientific literature and, and, and the technology into your practice? Our approach to teaching that is, is more based around discussing principles of, well, how do you use evidence to inform your practice than actually, and, and so that you, students become critical thinkers and, and people who think deeply about what they're doing. And that if if students have those skills, that then actually, um, well, the, the, the research itself is just mm. um, ammunition uh, that, that feeds into your thought process and, and, and that, you know, that, you know, directly informs the, the way you coach. Yeah, that's terrific and very well said. And, you know, when you look over the landscape, um, whether it's at the university level or the, you know, elite professional level, where do you think there's still some opportunities to be made in terms of whether it's on the technical side of coaching or whether it's how, how you know, data and science are, are integrated into the system? I think there's huge opportunities for, for uh, improvements to be made. Um, again, one 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 minor rant that I have in the book is this uh, this culture of this this culture or this idea that's been promoted by by a, by British sport um, and in particular British cycling of okay well the way that they get better is is the accumulation of marginal gains that is that yeah okay well if we can find one percent here one percent there um, that, that that that's how we make big improvements in performance. It's always been my experience working with elite support that <laughs> in very many areas, they're a very long way away from having tapped out um, the potential of just doing the basics well. Um, and, 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 and so, yeah, I, I think, yeah, I, I, I think there's, there's, there's a great many places that, that we can go and that we're, we're a long way from seeing um, the ceiling of human potential, actually. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating, isn't it, to, to see what, what could be done and can be done. And when you talk about potentially some of those roadblocks or hurdles to some of the those fundamentals, are there certain areas in particular or an example that you might be able to give to really highlight that? Yeah, so um, uh, an interesting example maybe is uh, one, one thing that's very, very big in the mythology of British cycling is that they had this secret squirrels club. Um, and the Secret Squirrels Club was uh, 
the team that was doing all of the technical development in, in terms of the bikes and equipment that the riders were using. Mm-hmm. And years and years ago, I, I saw a presentation by Chris Boardman where he was talking about kind of um, what he was trying to do in the presentation is that he was trying to illustrate that uh, that the Secret Squirrel Club was really, really responsive and adaptable. Whereas, and, and so he, he, he was presenting this as really, really uh, great best practice. Where, whereas for me, all I was hearing was uh, examples of poor planning. So for instance, um, before, I think it would have been the Athens Olympics, it, um, they had kind of the, the, the engineer who, who worked on Chris Hoy's bike, um, they kind of, the, the athletes had gone into holding camp and apparently they'd kind of said, okay, well, um, you, you, your job's done now, you, you can go off on holiday. Um, and so this engineer had, you know, gone home to Brazil or something, um, but then kind of when the athletes had gone into camp, uh, lo and behold, Chris Hoy's bike had broken. Oh, and no. so th- they were then kind of telling this story of how um, they'd got the engineer over Skype, which, you know, 10 years ago would have been pretty unusual, and that, you know, they were using a hairdryer to heat up, you know, X or Y component and, and, and managing to kind of use the ha- everyday household items that are around in order to fix Chris Hoy's bike. MacGyver it together. There you go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and, and for me, I mean, I, I was just, I, I was just perplexed by the idea that, okay, well, why didn't you let the guy go on holiday after the games? <laughs> it, it doesn't seem to me that hard to predict um, that you might need the bike engineer. Well, while. What, you know, dur- during the competition. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, it is amazing how so many things can come down, especially in retrospect, to just uh, planning and, and um, really thinking ahead, right? Yeah, and the, the, there's, there's, like, if you get into the... I mean, it, it, it's it's always a dangerous game to start looking at the, the way that certain athletes are training and saying, okay, well, you know, the, these guys could be better if uh, if they were doing this or that. I mean, that that's a that's a very dangerous game to get involved in. Um, but it's it, it's pretty common in in um, say team sports, for instance, that all of the athletes do exactly the same program. The rationale being that they're a team and so, you know, that they need to team build um, Mm -hmm. by by doing all the same things. When actually I I can see some rationale to that, but you're still kind of, well, I think kind of you could still maintain uh, uh, some camaraderie and have a little bit of individualized training. And I I find it hard to um, believe that that wouldn't, you know, result in some greater improvements. Absolutely. And, you know, Dan, dovetails into my next question here, which is, you know, throughout your career in California, English Institute of Sport, um, working with numerous professional elite athletes, you know, what were some of the biggest lessons that you learned, you know, perhaps through challenges, perhaps not, but uh, the biggest lessons that you learned along the way? I'll, I'll tell you my biggest professional failure um, as a coach. Um, and that was... Or, or to give some context to it, um, when, when the EIS started up, 
um, there was a bit, this big challenge of, okay, well, we were all strength coaches, sports scientists, et cetera, et cetera. And it, it was our job to go in and talk to coaches and try and persuade them to listen to us when, when they'd never had sports science teams before. And the culture within the EIS was always really this, 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 this idea of softly, softly catch a monkey. Uh, just go in, listen a lot until, until you're asked for your opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that's great, but it doesn't always work. Uh, yeah, and, I might never ask. <laughs> yeah, and 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 certainly, where, where I where, what I view as my biggest professional failure was when, I, you know, the the, the 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 there are certain times that came where, well, actually, I should have taken a stand and said, actually, you know what, I don't think that's very good um, for this, this and this reason, and and I think you should be doing this um, rather than just. Uh, smiling and nodding and, and, and waiting for them to tell to ask me to tell them why I thought their program was bad. Absolutely, and Dan, is that is that just a function of sort of experience and things, or is now you would have done so, or um, environment even? Like, what are some things that you can put your finger on that might contribute to that for folks who are in that similar situation maybe today <laughs> that are listening in? Right? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, it's a difficult, uh, you know, like it, it, it it's a difficult judgment call to make because sometimes mm-hmm. sometimes i mean if you if you sometimes it's not appropriate for you to just be uh shouting up saying what you're shouting constantly what your opinion is especially if you're a, a junior member of a, a sports science support team um but you know on a personal level i i think when i was younger i was all i always tried to avoid conflict and you know I, actually now i i've discovered that kind of in in my professional life I seem to people t- value me more if I just say what I think. Um, it's a great piece of advice for sure. Mm-hmm. And and Dan, for you throughout your career, you know, in terms of mentors, I know Dan John in the book has mentioned uh, any any mentors that really stand out for you that really helped in terms of your development. Yeah, so I, I wouldn't perceive that I'd, I'd ever had a mentor. I've, I've had some people who were very influential on me. Um, and, and yeah, I, I've I've talked about that on, on Twitter and things. That actually, I, I do think that we're at danger as a profession, certainly in strength and conditioning, of suggesting there's only one way to develop, and that mm-hmm. often you see lists of okay, what you need to do to be a great coach. You know, always has get a great mentor. Um, whereas I, I do think there's other um, there's other ways to achieve that. And so for me, I I, I always say that I I just have friends who will tell me when I'm being a dick. Um, uh, and and, you know provided you're you're able to have full and frank you know reflective conversations with your friends that 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 can serve you know equally as you know as a a type of mentorship and and I'm lucky enough that like several of my friends are really really great coaches Um, and, and so we can have some great discussions that's so so true in terms of the value of having a group where you can really be honest and forthright and have those tough conversations or, or share your opinion and 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 sometimes be put in your place by by folks and and um, so that's so crucial for everyone's development. So it's great that you have that kind of uh, community there. And, and and Dan, if we look at here on the evolution of research and strength and conditioning, you know, where do you see the evolution going in the next five or ten years? I mean, uh, what what I'd like to see in, in the evolution of research in strength and conditioning is many, many more well-designed training studies. Um, 
think the the the, the big weakness with the the literature relating to training is that things aren't very well controlled and that ultimately what you get is you just have one training program compared to another training program where those two programs differ on all sorts of different variables and so then the outcome of that research is just is just well this program worked better than this one but it doesn't tell you anything fundamentally about um or deeper about the training process um so yeah what, what, what i'd like to see is a lot more really really tightly controlled training studies that just try and pick apart the effect of, of individual variables so that the, the two groups that are being compared aren't that different at all um the, the, there's just one difference between them but you can then actually start saying definitively actually you know what um i think this is the driver and so kind of uh with my students one thing which, which ties very closely to, to my book is that but that i feel very strongly is that in many cases starting light um leads to better games better games and so we've done a few studies now where the the, the athletes follow exactly the same program pretty much apart from one group just starts lighter than the other um and and, and then the result of that is actually yeah you can say something actually pretty useful um and, and in, in our work we we have supported this idea of okay yeah like training light you know is, is probably at least as effective if not more effective yeah it's uh really interesting that idea of being able to really be able to parse out some key takeaways from a lot of the research because there's obviously so many variables involved and you know are some of the hurdles to that dan just just the resources or being able to, to recruit the, the right kind of um you know, trainees, or is it simply just a matter of, of focusing everybody in and, and getting uh, getting to it? I mean, training studies are difficult. Um, that like it's hard to recruit. It's hard to get people to adhere to programs. Um, in in today's science, uh, as academics, we have a lot of pressure to kind of publish lots of research because that's how we're judged. And and the outcome of that is that well. I, if you have a choice between doing something that's difficult or something that's easy, um, many people will, will, will do something that's easy and that leads to many publications. Mm -hmm. um, so I think I do think that the structure of science uh, does mean that, that less of this work is done. Um, but yeah, like it's also certainly because yeah, these these studies are difficult. Um, I, I'm always I always try and encourage our students quite strongly to to do training studies because uh, they're useful, um, but also that they're a really great challenge um, and, and education should be challenging properly. That's terrific. Listen, Dan, I want to definitely respect your time here today and, uh, you know, fantastic insights here so far. So, you know, last question for you, you know, for an athlete or coach who's listening in, you know, what's one piece of advice uh, on this topic that you'd give to help improve um, their potential and their be ability to perform uh i guess don't forget that training is practice uh so try and shift your mindset to to one where okay yeah sometimes we we try and stress an athlete and make them tired so that they adapt but a lot of the you know a lot of the time we also just want to practice and and as we said earlier leave the session feeling better than we started 
Awesome, Dan. Uh, fantastic insights again. I really appreciate you taking the time here. You know, uh, where, thank you for having me. Where can people stay connected with you and keep up with your phenomenal uh, work and research? Yeah, I'm, I'm mainly on Twitter. So I'm on Dr. Underscore Jump underscore UK. Uh, I guess that, that's where I'm most active. Fantastic. I'll definitely include that link and the book link as well um, in the show notes at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. Thanks again for everyone else tuning in. If you have any questions for Dan or want to leave a comment on today's episode, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach out on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Dr. Bubs. Of course, if you enjoyed the show, please take a minute, subscribe on iTunes, YouTube, or your favorite pod catching platform. It's greatly appreciated. Thanks again, and see you guys all next week. The Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bubs Performance Podcasts.